Welcome everybody to the Healing Place Podcast. I am your host, Terry Welbrock. Excited to have with me today, Jen Johnson. And I have to read only because my menopause brain, you know, forgets these things. And I just said it like two seconds ago. Mindfulness teacher, coach, and licensed professional counselor. But then we just talked about, you know, photographer and writer as well. So welcome, Jen. Thanks, Terry. I'm so excited to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just thrilled to have you here. I told you I was just stalking your website again. <laughs> so, and wonderful, wonderful work that you're doing out there in the world. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. I love it. I love everything that I do. Yeah, it, I find it, I tell people I find it a soul calling because I, I own a business. That's um, my day job, you know, it pays the bills. <laughs> and but this is this work, you know, the podcast and the blog and the newsletter and, you know, the finishing up the book. It, it, that's just, and working with my therapy dog, Sammy, with kids. Um, that's my soul work. That's my, that's my calling. So, yeah. I get it. I totally get it. <laughs> yeah. So talk to us about, you know, what, what your mission is and, and what it is you're doing. Yeah, I I have this really unique blend of um, work that I do that is about helping people heal through difficult times. And um, I try to work with people in a way that just really empowers us all to take responsibility for our own well-being. I think, you know, when I was growing up, I had some struggles growing up with a mom who had addiction and um, I really didn't grow up with that sense of agency that, you know, that I could have an impact on how I felt every day. And, um, you know, I, I woke up not very excited to my life for a lot of years in my younger years. And so I've created this work that is intended to empower people to know that we all have a sense of agency in um, impacting our wellness, no, no matter, you know, if we're struggling with illness or mental illness um, or soul illness, um, there are things that we can do to feel better. And so I teach mindfulness meditation and yoga, and I also bring in um, writing for healing, photography for healing, and, and teach people how to connect deeply with nature. And those are the things that have gotten me through difficult times uh, and those are the things that I found that have been most impactful with the clients that I serve. Yeah, beautiful. Woman after my own heart, because all of those things, mindfulness. Oh, when I discovered mindfulness um, in my process, I did EMDR therapy for four years um, to begin my healing journey. And then, but also filled my toolbox, as I like to call it, you know, with um, all these wonderful in yoga and meditation and nature are all part of that. But mindfulness, I think, is my is my favorite go-to if I feel my anxiety starting to, you know, my symptoms of PTSD. I used to have severe panic attacks. No longer, yay. But yeah. I can still, I'm so aware of my body now and in touch with it that I can feel if my anxiety starts to heighten. I go to that 54321 mindfulness technique, um, you know, find five things to look at describe them to myself in great detail and then kind of work through the senses. Um, and being in nature is my favorite place to do it. We live near a nature center. So um, yeah, I'll just go out and someone told me recently, take a nature bath. And I loved that visual, you know, just immersing ourselves into the, into the, yeah, like a bath of nature. So sounds and all that. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And there, I mean, the, the cool thing is, you know, there are a lot of us, you included, I know from our previous conversation, who've been doing mindfulness for a long time. And the research is finally catching up with um, how impactful it is in terms of healing and recovery. And um, just, I love the way that you just described that, like, you know, being in touch with your body and knowing when you leave. And um, the way I like to describe that is, you know, I tell my clients, find your home base. And we can find our home base in that, in that place of um, softness and peace. And a lot of us have never experienced that. You know, I had never really consciously experienced that until I first practiced mindfulness meditation. And um, I think when we get in a habit of that regular practice and learn to sense in our bodies what it feels like to be in home base then we can more easily recognize when we leave it. And that's why I think that regular practice is so important because it brings us back to that sense 
that felt sense in the body of, oh, I'm back, I'm back home, I'm back in the present moment, I'm in my body. Um, and then when we leave, we, we start to go, oh, let me, I've left, let me get back, how do I get back? And then having that strategy, like yours is 54321, you know, having that strategy to bring ourselves back is really critical. I love I love that that concept of home base. It's that it, I mean that's very powerful. Only because, um, and I don't know if you and I talked about this when we spoke on the phone, but when I used to you know be experiencing severe panic attacks, my my therapist and others would say you know breathe, and I struggled with breathing horribly because I was so terrified of being in my own body, right. like. The sensations were overwhelming to me and so scary that breathing brought attention to me being in my body, which sounds very odd, but I didn't want to be in my body. I was more comfortable in, you know, in this little dissociative kind of state of, no, that body's scary and has scary stuff going on in it. Um, and, but when I learned mindfulness and started slowly acclimating myself to being comfortable in my body then I was able to start utilizing breath work. And, um, and then, then I understood the concept of breath work and how powerful that can be. But until I, until I found mindfulness, so it was, all, again, kind of filling this toolbox up and finding what works for me. So, yeah. And I think that's a common experience for so many people, and especially people, those of us who have experienced trauma and, you know, especially early trauma, being in, being in the body, you know, oftentimes the body was mistreated or abused or whatever. And so being in that does feel overwhelming. And for a lot of people, focusing attention on the breath, just that phrase, it just is so vague. And we're turning attention toward this process that's usually automatic. And so we're noticing it. And then there's this thought sometimes of, oh, my gosh, what if it stops? And right. a, a lot of people just, you know, experience anxiety with turning the attention toward the breath. And you mentioned a little earlier about sounds. And so for those who are, um, you know, who experience undue anxiety with turning the attention toward the breath, externalizing the focus can help with that. Just resting the attention on sounds to begin with and starting to build that practice of concentration and focused attention externally and then gradually working toward, you know, an internal process. But it's, um, it's both great and scary to me that so many people are teaching mindfulness right now because, you know, there are a lot of people that, that don't understand the, um, the nuances of teaching mindfulness in a trauma-sensitive way. And um, I, I try my best to do that. I'm certainly not perfect at it, but there, there are a lot of ways that um, people who experience anxiety related to mindfulness might be able to do it if they're working with a skilled practitioner who understands trauma-sensitive mindfulness. And, and it's a very gradual process of learning how to feel safe with being present in your own body. It's so gradual. It's not this thing that you can just instruct somebody right. to do and they're going to get it and feel okay. And um, I think a lot of people are sort of getting re-traumatized by inexperienced teachers who are very well intentioned, but don't really understand how to work with people with trauma. So right. hopefully that news and those teachings will continue to spread out there. But yes, I, I love that idea. Well, I just think we're becoming such a more, hopefully trauma informed world yes. um, in that people are starting to understand. As a matter of fact, I had um, my daughter's on spring break this week. And so she, had some girlfriends yesterday. They were like, can you take us to the mall shopping and Chick-fil-A and, you know, tropical smoothie. And I was like, sure. So we were driving along, you know, I took the girls out for a little excursion and there was a gentleman trying to cross the street and he just, he was just showing a lot of symptoms of just, um, that there was something off and, and he just, he was pacing a lot and he, you know, he was smoking a cigarette, but it was very nervous and he was shaky and he was, he would step out in the road and then he would step back and the girls, one of the kids, you know, was like, what's up with that weird guy? And I said, you know, I used to kind of have that same thought process, but then now I ask myself, Oh my gosh, I wonder what's happened in his life. Yeah. Like, what has he experienced? And so I started talking to the girls about it and saying, you know, that 
when we see people who are struggling like that, they've probably most likely been through something horrific in their life and they are still trying to figure out how to make them to get themselves through each day or each moment or whatever it is. And his was just crossing the street. Um, and so I, I just, I want us to be able to get to a world where we are all thinking that way. Like at least if we can't, help the person in that moment, at least send up a prayer or something, or at least acknowledge their story, you know, right. in a compassionate way rather than in a judging way. Yes. People yeah. tend to judge what is unfamiliar and what scares them, you know, and um, I, I love that uh, that shift is starting to happen in a lot of communities from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. Yes. And I think um, the, the, my city, my home city is Wilmington, North Carolina, and the whole county is um, developing a um, resiliency kind of focus. We have a resiliency task force, and we're looking at spreading this teaching of resiliency throughout the whole community and schools to healthcare professionals, um, because it's it's just rampant, that lack of understanding and judgment and um, there's so there's so much we can do as a society if we approach people and their struggles with compassion. So, yes, well, I mean, just the resiliency studies alone of, you know, the impact of a teacher, the impact of you know a coach. I know you know the horrific trauma that I went through for my first 22 years of life. But yet I came out, you know, people are like, how are, how do you radiate such joy? Why are you always smiling? And you've been through such horrible. And I, I'm telling you, it was the resilience that I, I just had exposure to a grandmother that was very present in my life that was um, extremely nurturing and loving and gentle, never yelled at me, you know, just such a presence and simple. I mean, what a simple way. And then I had a teacher who was very powerful um, and again, just very gentle and very loving, and I needed that, uh, which I think so many who are going through trauma to do, just that gentle presence of encouragement and love. So, yeah. 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 And, and it's such, it's such an uh, um, impactful thing in terms of a brain standpoint. I mean, the, you, I'm not going to say anything that you don't know, but the brain has an, a negativity bias, and it has that negativity bias so that we can always stay focused on potential threats in order to survive. And, but when we've experienced significant real threats, like any kind of trauma, then that part of the brain kind of gets more activated more easily. And, and so it's going to be even uh, this heightened awareness toward perceived threats, but that, um, you know, it, it's like the more we focus on perceived threats, the more the brain kind of wants to go there and having someone nurturing in our lives who, you know, loves us unconditionally or helps us to engage in the world with um, and, and connect with a sense of joy. It's like that starts to balance that negativity bias. And um, similarly, when we, you know, when we grow up and, and we're kind of locked into that, um, perceived threat perspective and our nervous systems are overly activated and in fight or flight, the way out of that, and this is what mindfulness teaches basically is a learning to recognize what does my body feel like when I'm activated in that, you know, fight or flight. And then B, what strategies can I use to calm down? One of the easiest ones is four, six breath, breathe into the count of four, breathe out to the count of six or singing, you know, and anything we do to elongate that exhale can activate the rest and repair system of the nervous, the mode of the nervous system and start to calm us down. But what also happens is then, you know, it's really easy post-trauma to get locked into this negative perception because our, you know, our brains just get wired to that. And again, the way out of that is start to focus start to incline the mind towards something positive on a regular basis, you know, get up in the morning and name th three things you're grateful for. You get ready to go to bed, name three things that went well during the day. Just these small things can start to sort of create a new pathway in the brain toward positives, toward joy, toward the good in your world. And 
Um, you know, I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, what's wrong with me? I, I'm always negative. And it's like, no, your brain is just, your brain has gotten wired that way for good reason to try to save you. That's a good thing, but let's kind of, you know, create some balance and start to rewire it in a different way. And it's, um, it, when you're, when you know, you know, I know I went through a period of intense grief and, and trauma with my mom's addiction when I was in my mid thirties. And, um, it's really easy to get caught in that loop of overwhelm and everything's difficult. And I remember during that phase, one of my yoga teachers said, for every moment that you're grieving, focus attention on joy. For every moment that you grieve, spend an, spend an equal moment experiencing joy. And I remember looking at her like, you've got to be out of your mind. Like, I've gone through five years of all these people in my life dying and my mom relapsing with addiction after 24 years. And where is joy? You know, where is the joy? And, but I, you know, I really trusted this teacher. So I took it to heart and started bringing in that awareness of, okay, every, and, and started not only grieving more consciously, like choosing when I was going to allow myself to focus on grieving and processing feelings and writing about it or making photos of about grief and then choosing an equal amount of time to focus on cultivating joy. And I swear it just, it turned things around for me and um, what felt so impossible at the time has become one of the primary things that I teach people. And uh, there's just so much research now that supports that philosophy about, you know, how we can, rewire our brain toward healing, toward joy, toward happiness, um, toward peace and contentment. It's, it's, you know, it's just a matter of knowing how and then putting it into practice and setting up systems to remind ourselves to put it into practice. But it's life changing. Oh, for sure. And as you were talking about, you first started saying rewiring, I was going to yell out, you know, about brain plasticity. And just when I discovered that and realized, you know, forever I was, I I told myself, I can't write this book. I can't write this book because, you know, I'm still broken, broken. And then I realized, um, you know, well, one, I, I discovered brain plasticity and thought, oh my gosh, I don't have to continue in these same patterns and these same thought patterns and and response patterns more than anything and I could change my habits and change and rewire yes um and that's just oh my gosh you talk about offering hope to people right yeah Yeah. and as you're saying that I'm thinking of um the research of um Sonia Lubomirsky who's done a lot of research on happiness and um you know on a similar note she's looked at like what what contributes to our happiness set point and what she's determined is that it's 40 percent determined by genetics um 10 this was shocking to me 10 percent of our happiness set point is determined by our life circumstances and that includes our um any traumatic experiences that have happened illnesses um, socioeconomic status, education, um, loss, and then 40% of our happiness set point is determined by our intentional activity. And top of the list of intentional activity is mindfulness. And, you know, the joke is a, a, a pessimist, a person who has a pessimistic kind of thinking style will look at those statistics and go, oh man, 40% genetics i'm so screwed right. <laughs> and an optimist will go oh my gosh 40 percent is determined by intentional activity like we have agency over a lot of our happiness and that too was kind of a game changer for me and personally and for my work yeah um, so there I, I mean how cool when you that what caught my attention was that only that 10 percent is attributed to you know, the yes. trauma story, and it goes back to, you know, when people say to me, oh my gosh, Terry, how come you're always so smiley and radiating joy, and you know, you've been through all this horrible stuff, and blah, 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 blah. and I would be like, I, <laughs> for a long time, I don't know, <laughs> I just yeah. focus on the positive, and look for the good stuff, and, and that was it, so yeah. Yeah, and it, I get curious too, like about, you know, what is it that 
help some of us decide I'm not going to feel this way. I'm not going to be stuck here. And what is it that, you know, leads to other people feeling so stuck. But I, I, I try as much as I can to educate people like no matter how badly you feel, there are things that you can do to feel better. And, um, and, you know, maybe the, the things about you and I are that we, we made it, we made a, we became utterly determined to figure out what some of those things were or we could do. And we did them, but you know, the, the beauty of it is, we're both out there and there are other people out there who have had similar experiences who are talking about these things and teaching people, you know, here's one thing you can do. Here's another thing you can do. And, and um, my hope is that these kinds of conversations empower people to start trying some of these things and, and learning that they too can feel better no matter how, how awful it gets. I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've been through a, a lot of difficult times in my life. I don't know why I've, I'm, you know, I know people my age who've never experienced the loss of a loved one. And for some reason, I'm one of those people that I've known a lot of people who've died, both personally and professionally. My best friend died when I was five. I was in a horrible car accident when I was six. So I had a lot of difficult things that, that um, led to a rocky start for me but I, you know, thankfully I discovered meditation when I was in college. Like, I think I was, must've been 19. And um, so I've been practicing since then. And I, you know, I don't want to think about what, what would, what would my twenties have been like if I didn't have that practice? And, um, but I, I love that, you know, so many people, like even kids that I know now are learning the practice and, um, it's, it's hopefully going to be a game changer for a lot of people a lot earlier than it was for me and a lot earlier than it was for you. And, um, I just think it's an exciting time to be doing this work. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think of my own kids, my son, my oldest son, John is 25 and he moved to Denver a little over a year ago, but I love when I talk to him on the phone and he'll, you know, he'll talk to me about these, these, just even his own awareness of his own, you know, responses to things and in his um you know his anxiety or whatever it is and and how he's learning to deal with it and how he's reading and I was so not in touch with any of that when I was in my 20s so kudos to you for finding meditation um yeah and I hope again yeah more youth and teens um who who struggle a lot you know or, or start to find those resources yeah. yeah wonderful so any um myths or facts that you would like to clarify for listeners? Yeah, I often, probably the most common one is, is um, I hear people say, well, I tried meditation and I couldn't do it right. And, you know, there's this belief that there's a right way to do it. And I think what people are imagining is that if, you know, let's say they're practicing awareness of breathing and we're focusing on the breath or our awareness of sounds and focusing on sounds. And then the attention wanders and we bring it back. I think a lot of people believe that if the mind is wandering a lot, they're not doing it right or they're not good at it and they quit. And it's, you know, the practice is not so much um, that you're able to hold your attention the whole time. The mind is going to wander because that's, you know, minds are busy thinking. That's what they do. The practice is really about, being able to be aware of building that awareness and noticing it when, when it wanders. And as soon as you notice it, just meet that with non-judgment and bring the attention back. And um, once people realize that, you know, it's like, Oh, there's no right way to do this. Maybe I can do this. Uh, but that's just the practice again and again and again for awareness of breathing, noticing when the attention wanders, bringing it back, noticing when the attention wanders, bringing it back. Yes. And I love the concept of without judgment. I, I learned that in a, in a guided meditation, you know, on a phone app, I was doing a meditation, just sitting in my room and, and the, the, the woman's very gentle and soothing voice, you know, kept reminding me, you know, if you've wandered, it's okay without, you know, just bring your attention back to the breath, you know, without judgment. And I just kind of remember looking at my phone, like I stopped for a second. I was like, without judgment. Well, that's a concept. That's cool. And yeah. now I do it that way. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's, you know, mindfulness is non-judgmental awareness. It's paying a particular kind of attention in a particular kind of way. I, I like to say mindfulness is awareness of the present moment without clinging to it when it's good, without trying to run away or turn away or escape it when it's difficult and without wanting it to be otherwise. And, you know, even if, if that, even if we never sat on a meditation cushion or in a chair to formally meditate and we practiced meeting our everyday moments like with that attitude and that practice, it would be a game changer of, you know, that's the root of a lot of our suffering is, um, you know, clinging to something when it's good. We take a bite of our favorite cookie. The first thought is usually, oh my gosh, this is so good. And then the second thought is usually, how can I get more? And for a lot of women, you know, because we're so culturally conditioned, a lot of women then go, oh, but I shouldn't have it, but I want it, but I shouldn't have it. And then before you know it, it's like hands are empty. Where did the cookie go? I don't even remember eating it because I wasn't here. I got entangled in clinging to um, craving more and left the present moment. And then similarly, you know, when difficulty arises, we tend, our human tendency is to feel overwhelmed by it and turn away from it, try to escape it. And that's where we get into trouble. We start turning toward you know, eating too much, indulging in TV or internet, um, retail therapy, you know, all these kind of compulsive things that we do to try to escape what's difficult. And, you know, my favorite question is, does that bring you relief? And people are kind of stumped for a minute. And then one brave person in the room will say, well, yeah. And I'm like, yes, it does for a moment. And that's the difficulty of it. It's like, it does bring momentary relief. It activates that reward center in the brain. It makes the brain want to, to do more of that because it feels relieving. But in the long term, it often, whatever we're doing to escape, um, you know, gets bigger because it's unattended to. And then whatever the, the behavior that we've done to try to escape often creates more suffering. So, you know, can we practice being in the present moment? practice trying to not cling, enjoy joy when it's here without clinging to it and leaving the present moment, facing our difficult moments head on, which is, it's, it sounds simplistic, but again, it's a, there's a systematic way of building tolerance to difficult thoughts, difficult emotions, difficult experiences in a way that we don't have to keep turning away and trying to escape. And then can we stop wanting things to be otherwise and getting entangled in that and just meet whatever's here, acknowledge it, and then ask, is skillful action required here or is there nothing I can do and do I just need to practice acceptance? Um, but just that, just that everyday attempt can bring a lot of peace. Yeah. Wow, you've taught me a lot in that this past three minutes because I've never really had it explained that way before and that's brilliant. Gosh, I, I love it. Um, what a, what a great way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. You got my mind like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, for years, for my early years, I spent a lot of time focused on studying mindfulness and then meditating, but I, it took a long time before I really came to understand that a lot of, you know, the, the formal meditation practice is just a training ground. It's a, it's an opportunity to, um, kind of like have an up close and less distracted view of what our habitual mental patterns are. But it, a lot of the real magic of this practice comes when we take the practices and principles and apply them in our everyday lives. You know, my, my brand, the name of my business is everyday mindful for that reason. It's like everyday mindfulness for me is where the magic happens. Um, I, I still do a daily formal sitting practice and and that you know again helps me to stay in touch with that sense of home base but um throughout my day i'm i'm working my practice in in an everyday kind of way and how i interact with my thoughts my feelings my interactions with other people um and just trying to be more in the present moment more moments you know yeah. I'll never be perfect. I'm not a monk. I live a, you know, a, or a nun. I live a, a very everyday kind of life. So I'm not, you know, no, none of us are going to be perfect at this. Yeah. But the, the effort certainly has a lot of rewards. Yes. And it makes me think, you know, 
what, what you're saying makes so much sense because if you just, if you implement it along, as you go along your day, you know, and it does start to become a habit that you just, I find myself very mindful all day long. You know, I, I just find myself doing it and being very present to um, the beauty around me or, you know, little things that make me smile and because, because I've practiced it just throughout the day, um, yeah. you know, in a, in a kind of off but similar kind of way. And this just popped into my head. My mom is very religious, like, like the most Catholic person I know. And she, you know, has her ritual of making her cup of coffee. And then she says, you know, I do my morning prayers and she has a little prayer book and then she'll be like, and then I did my afternoon prayers and then I do my night prayers. And so like she has these prayers. And so she's like, do you pray? You know, she's always on me. And I'm like, mom, I pray throughout my day. Like I'm just, I'll see a beautiful sunrise and I'll be like, I'll just stop and say, Oh my gosh, thanks God. You know, but, but it's, it's that it, it's kind of embracing that mindfulness of just stopping in the moment yes. and just being appreciative of, of that gift. And, but yes, all part of that just mindfulness practice that's my prayer (laughs) yes yes and how beautiful I mean that and the great thing about this practice is you can blend it in with any spiritual belief or practice or none you know you can you can make it an integral part of your spiritual and religious beliefs and practices and I love helping people of different religious faiths do that when they're interested and you can also learn it as a secular practice I teach um the eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction course. And that course was designed as a secular practice. Um, and it, it's such a popular practice uh, because it's, it does exactly what you just described. It kind of starts people in, in, a, in a beginning spot, helping them understand how to practice, giving them practices to do, giving them homework assignments to do every day. And then... Um, again, whatever we rest our attention on grows. So if we're resting our attention on expanding our awareness, that awareness by week eight is is just kind of astounding um, to watch people grow in that. I teach this practice uh, in person in an eight-week course, and now I offer it in an online course and um, do a lot of one-on-one coaching for people who are going through that course. And the, the you know, by about week three, the people who are doing their homework are just like, oh my gosh, I'm starting to notice the beauty in my world, or I'm starting to pay more attention to the things I love about my partner, or, you know, I'm finding things that I love about my work that I hadn't thought about in a long time. And, and just that awareness grows and grows and grows. And it, and it's endless. You know, there's not, there's not a, a destination that we arrive at in this practice, it just, I've been practicing it for over 30 years and it just keeps expanding and growing. And, um, I, I'm a lifelong learner. I love learning. And for me, it's, you know, it always, always provides interesting things for me, new, you know, intellectual stimulation, spiritual growth, personal growth. Um, and, and I love the way we can just keep growing in that practice. It's just that I've never seen anything like, I've never experienced anything like that. And it's just really exciting to me. Yeah, that is very exciting. One thing popped in my head and then I'll ask you like, how do people get in touch with you and connect with you if they, you know, would like to do this with you. Um, but the thing that popped in my head was you said, you know, there's not a destination and I, I don't know why this just came to me, but, um, you know, we're already at our destination. We're we're here in us like we're we're at our destination it's just as we become mindful it's almost like we're we're opening up and we're shedding a light we're we're letting that light in or letting that light out <laughs> right um expanding that light and then then our destination it just becomes you know obvious to us that we're already here right we're just allowing ourselves that opportunity to be present in it Right, exactly. And that, you know, what we talked about earlier in terms of that non-judgmental awareness, the beauty of this practice is learning to turn that non-judgmental awareness toward ourselves and then grow, you know, developing acceptance of ourselves, growing into um, being able to be more compassionate towards ourselves and kinder. And a lot of us are really good at being kind to other people, but not so skilled at being kind to ourselves. And so, 
that's another benefit of this practice is that we learn to love ourselves more deeply, care for ourselves as though we were a beloved other. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to look at it. I know a friend of mine, this was years ago, was like, you know, Terry, you have to go see this psychic. You know, I, I have the psychic I see. And I was like, oh, I don't want to go see psychic. And she was like, come on, come on, because she convinced me. And I remember walking in the door to this, this gentleman and he, you know, he looked at me and he said, wow, you give out a tremendous amount of love. And he said, how come you don't accept it back? How come you don't, you know, bring it back to yourself? And I just burst out crying. Like I was like, I don't know. Like it's so touched a chord with me about just what you said. Yeah. Of not giving it back to myself or allowing it to come back to me. Um, and so that was part of that healing process that I started on. Yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. Cool. So I have to ask you one of my favorite questions, just because it's so fun and I love the answer that I get from people. So if you could meet anyone that are alive who could help you with your continued journey, either professionally or personally or both, who would it be? Uh, I love that question. Um, probably Marion Woodman. And um, she was a Jungian analyst who practiced out of Toronto. And I, I actually did get to meet her a couple of times back in the 80s. So in the beginning of my journey toward healing and journey as in training as a, a psychotherapist, I um, attended several conferences where she spoke. And then I attended one small workshop that she did. And, and a lot of that workshop was about being embodied you know, getting grounded in our bodies. But I would really love to go back, you know, 30 something years later and have a conversation with her. She did pass on, I think like a year, and it was either last year or the year before. So that, that opportunity has passed. But she's one of the wisest people I know. And I've just really have read everything she, every book she ever wrote and um, attended every conference in my in my younger years that I could, um, and and I'm always I will always be grateful for how her work affected me personally and and shaped the beginning of my work as a therapist and and again all about making peace with our bodies and being in our bodies and caring for our bodies in, in loving ways which is. It's not something that we're culturally taught, and right. certainly for those of us who have had either illness or trauma, it, it's an even greater challenge, and, um, and we're really, I think, being called more deeply these days to do that healing work than ever, just given the state of the earth. It's yes. Like if we don't get this interdependent relationship we have with our bodies and the planet and start turning attention toward healing both the planet and our bodies we're we're in trouble um i think we're kind of in already a little in trouble but there you know i love that concept of focusing attention on that reciprocal relationship and um seeing both our earth and our bodies as interdependent and both needing and deserving healing yes in a beautiful way beautiful way to look at it so how do people get in touch with you um, you can go to my website, everydaymindful.com, um, and I'm on Facebook at Everyday Mindful, Twitter at Everyday Mindful, and Instagram at Meditate Create. Um, my work on Facebook and Twitter is more geared toward the mindfulness. My work on Instagram is more a blend of photography and mindfulness. Um, and the, the information about the eight-week MBSR course and how you can do one-on-one -on -one coaching with me is on the website as well. I, I coach clients all over the world, um, and I work with a lot of people like we're doing right now by video or phone. And, um, and yeah, I'm happy to, happy to hear from folks if this work sounds resonant or of interest. Wonderful. And the, anything else that you want to, want to touch on before we, before we end? Um, just, I'll, I'll go ahead and put out there. I'm, I'm working on two manuscripts. Um, and uh, yeah, I know we should talk about our, books. I know. Yes. <laughs> um, and, uh, seriously, let's do, 
And um, one is a, a memoir um, about my relationship with my mom um, and her struggle with addiction and, and a suicide attempt and her dying from cancer and, mm-hmm. and how her teaching me, um, like she just gave me the most beautiful gift of being in nature with me and teaching me how to connect deeply with nature. And it ended up being one of the primary things that helped me to heal from the chaos of her, or, you know, later uh, her relapse in later life. So I'm working on that book and then I'm working on another manuscript about um, the processes of mindfulness, yoga, creativity, and connection with nature that um, is more of an offering of teaching these practices that have been so instrumental in my own healing work. So look for those, hopefully. Yes, I know. I feel like I've been riding mine forever. I I keep hitting these stalls, you know, and my mom, you know, is... uh, I've struggled with addiction my entire life. Um, she was quit drinking at 82. She's 83. She quit drinking at 82, went 10 months and then fell off the wagon and fell hard. Um, so yeah, these past couple of weeks have just been, you know, I, I'm still battling my codependent relationship with her and, and pull, trying to change that role that I have. Cause I was always the one to run in and save the day you know, her superhero to come in and clean up the mess. And it's, I struggle with like, you know, I, I go, go to Al-Anon meetings and I just started <laughs> like a year ago, but I, I so struggle with like, Oh, she's 83 years old. How do I let an 83 year old, you know, struggle so much? And, you know, does it become elder abuse? Like, it's just very hard. You know, how much do I let her, fall on her face um literally and figuratively yeah i think she can find her own healing path and so when she was in the hospital i will say this last round just a week week 10 days ago my sister and i were with her and i finally you know it's just like i'd kind of reached my snapping point and i just i said mom you've got to start doing this healing work what happened to you what are you not we knew some stuff but i was like just talk to us. Talk to us. I don't want to burden my children. I was like, Mom, please, you've you've got to just let it out. Well, she started talking, and I mean, she was quivering and shaking, and but she started to tell some of these stories, and then I realized she really has some serious healing work to do. Here's this person who's carried this for 83 years, this horrific stuff. That no, and she said, "I've never told anybody this." And so we're working with the council on aging to get her some geriatric counseling um, and get her some professional help beyond just you know dumping it out, which is always good to finally get it out of you, but to finally start that that healing journey. So wow, good for you! And I I love what you said. Like it, it I think it is a whole different ball game. And you know, I know we all do the best we can in the moment and that that whole movement around codependency that started around the 80s was really super valuable to me as a young adult who'd had an addicted mom as a teenager and my mom stayed sober for 24 years and then her relapse got triggered by a prescription for oxycontin Mm -hmm. post-surgery and the thing that i found is you know she was aging as well and the rules that I'd, I'd learned, I'd done, we had done a lot of healing work together and found a really kind place of acceptance toward each other in our relationship. And everything changed when she relapsed. And, you know, it's it, the rules, I decided that all the rules of codependency that I'd learned, a lot of them didn't apply anymore because she, she was aging and she was needing a different kind of care you know, she was needing the typical caretaking that an aging parent, an unwell parent needs, and she was addicted. And you, you, I chose, you know, to kind of throw what I, throw what I knew about, put what I knew about codependency aside and go and just ask myself, what does my aging mother need? From oh, me? you're making me well up with tears because yes, yes. Well, you did the same thing. Like you yes. did, you didn't language it that way, but that's what you did. And I think, I don't know. I've, I question lately 
you know, I, I work with a number of clients whose um, young adult kids are addicted to opioids. And um, I, I just think we may need, and I don't know what that framework is, but I think we're at a point that we may need a different framework because for, for how we as family members relate to an addicted other, because the, you know, the patterns of addiction have changed, the substances have changed, the access has changed, and we're, we're kind of at this critical point. Like, we need new paradigms for how we deal with addiction in families. The old ones just don't apply on so many levels, and it can be so overwhelming to say, well, I don't want to be codependent, and you know, I tell my clients, like, don't confuse codependence with loving your oh. family member and taking action to try to help them. You know, like, it, it's, it's almost like that codependent movement wiped out the concept of love. Yes, yes, that is my philosophy. I'm that person that puts, you know, all my stuff out on Facebook. You know, I write the novel. For, and so my mom, my journey with my mom has been out there for so many people. To, to see and be a part of and the response has been overwhelmingly positive of like people reaching out privately to me and saying oh my gosh thank you thank you thank you you know you helped me along my journey and, and but and I had a point that I was going to give and now it's gone out my head but um yeah I think I lost it dude <laughs> I, was gonna, I, I think I was going to compliment you on something. Oh, you were talking about love. Yeah, there I came back. <laughs> so yeah, the whole love thing, and, and that's part of what I put about about my mom is that you know, it's I do find it so difficult. I now know I can't. I'm not her. I'm not her savior. You know, I'm not. I'm a fixer by nature, but I can't fix this for her. But I've had those conversations with my mom, and I think that's. That's part of it is that I'm like, Mom, I love you so much. I, I love you so much, but I can't fix this for you. You are the one that has to go back into those dark places and do your healing work. Um, you know, and then you'll, I, I promise I'll have my hand there and I'll hold your hand, and, but I can't do it for you. So that, that's where that love piece that at least I've done with my personal journey yeah. Mom. yeah. I can't I just abandon her. I just can't do it. It's not, I even wrote that on Facebook. I was like, I, it's not in me. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's hard. I mean, it, and when they're in the active throes of addiction, I mean, I can remember a period that my mom would call me every day, just wasted on yeah. opioids and benzodiazepines and mixing that with alcohol. And, you know, it was one of the hardest things, but it's like, you can't reason with an impaired person. Right. And I'd say, Mom, I love you. Call me when you're sober. And I'd hang up and it was, it was so hard, you know, and I'd, I'd talk with her when she was sober and say, I'm, I'm willing to do anything to get you help. Like I'll make the phone calls, but you have to be willing to receive the help and I'll come up there. I'll drive you anywhere to, to rehab. Um, and, and in that phase, she she re just utterly refused and she ended up um overdosing and then shooting herself and oh. it was it was just so traumatic and um thankfully she you know she did have a couple of years after that of living a sober life and being really committed to loving herself and living and but unfortunately you know within several years she was diagnosed with lung cancer and died a year later. And it was just this, it was such a tragic ending for someone. You know, I remember at one point she said to me, I don't understand. I've, I've really finally decided that I really want to live and now I'm going to die. And right. um, I just, there's so many layers of, of complexities with, with these uh, prescription medications oh, that are yeah. readily accessible and, um, right. It's just, I don't know. It's so, it's tragic. I hear stories tragic. Yes. every day about, oh. and, and the, um, I just think the, um, the middle-class aging person's addiction journey is really under, underestimated, misunderstood, and not really, there's, there are not a lot of conversations about that. So I, 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 I find it interesting that, you know, we're in conversation about that kind of shared journey. And I, I hope that our conversation gives 
more people and your conversation on Facebook and my conversations on Facebook give more and more people permission and encouragement to start having those conversations about their experience because my goodness, people are still so locked in shame about this and not talking about it. And that's one of the painful parts as a family member is feeling isolated. And I tell people, you know, you can't throw a rock anywhere these days and, and not (laughs) hit somebody who's, family is affected by addiction and they're all around you. You don't know it. Like I can be in the room and, and know three people are struggling with that with their families and they all think they're the only one because they're not talking about it. Right. Right. So many. Yeah. I, I had a, a, a cousin-in-law recently, you know, put out and she, you know, said, and she gets my newsletters and she's giving me such great response back about, you know, finding her voice. And she finally did it. She put out this massive post about her son's addiction and talked about, you know, you know, her spiritual journey with it and her, you know, the emotional journey and so forth. And, but, and she always said, you know, I'm just been, I've been so afraid of the response I would get. And the responses were like, I read every single one of them because I was so proud of her, number one. But I just was, I was so moved by how many people were like, you know, oh my God, me too. Or, you know, just, and it, it just started, it just opened these floodgates and it was beautiful in a, on a sad level, but beautiful nonetheless. Right, um, because there's there's just such power and empowerment in connection, and when you can find people, kind of like the hashtag Me Too movement, you know, is is women found one another, and there's just that sense of um, empowerment that happens from that. So yeah, yeah. Well, sharing our stories is I, I'm continually astounded by the healing power of sharing our stories. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. For ourselves as well as, you know, others as we allow them, allow them to either opportunity to share theirs or at least, you know, not along. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, it has been an absolute joy to have you here. I'm sure we could talk for a few more hours. <laughs> I know we didn't even get to all the questions, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> I loved um, I loved our conversation, Terry. Thank you so much. And let's let's do talk offline about our books. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. I'm going to do a quick little closeout here, and then I'll I'll hit stop record, and um, yeah, we'll chat for a second. So, everyone, thank you for joining us on the Healing Place podcast. And until next time, remember be gentle with yourselves. Thanks. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.